Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to another episode of New Jersey is the world. We have an episode today that I'm so excited for you to hear. It's a bucket list item. I'm going to talk about more of that in a second. Before I do, I want to let you know, I don't usually plug shows in the intros to New Jersey's of the World. Usually in podcasts, you'll hear the, the host too. I do it on Beautiful Anonymous. This week, though, I have a show coming up that I think fans of New Jersey's of the World will actually care about. I'm headlining a show at the Jersey City Comedy Festival. So you can get tickets, jerseycitycomedyfestival.com. I'm going up on Wednesday night. I would love to see people in Jersey City for that. And guess what? The whole festival lineup is great. So please check it out. And I would love to see you in Jersey City, Wednesday, June 7th, jerseycitycomedyfestival.com. Now, as I mentioned, today's episode is a very special one to me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I have interviewed a number of journalists who, who cover New Jersey. And very often when I do, one thing that comes up is that there's this legacy of journalism in New Jersey revolving around Jerry Eisenberg, who is the guest on today's episode. Jerry was a columnist for the Star-Ledger for many, many years. He covered the first 53 Super Bowls. He writes about boxing in particular in a way that I think a lot of people say he might be perhaps the greatest writer about boxing of all time. And he's written a new book called Baseball Nazis and Needick's Hot Dogs, Growing Up Jewish in the 1930s in Newark. And just from the title alone, I think you can all tell, this is a book that if you like New Jersey as the world, you're going to like this book. And I encourage you to go get it and leave a review and support one of the legends of New Jersey. Now, I was able to ask this man a number of questions. We hear a lot of great stories about life in Newark many years ago, about where he thinks Newark is at today. So many great stories about the Nork Bears, about all sorts of stuff. And it was lovely and joyous, and I got to sit back and listen and enjoy. I'm going to tell you this about Mr. Eisenberg. He's 92 years old, and there are times where I ask certain questions, and the answers are very long. And sometimes they stray from the questions. And I will say this. I loved that. And I encourage you right now to take a deep breath and enjoy it as well. Because here's what I realized immediately. There are times in this interview where I ask Mr. Eisenberg some questions and maybe the answers go in some different directions. And I very quickly realized the stories I'm getting are 10 times better than the answers to the questions I asked. And it's a beautiful thing. And it was an honor, a true honor to talk to this man. And I said it towards the end of the interview. I really mean it. We grew up in a state that historically has been made fun of. We are also in a state where we know we have a lot of pride for this place, for being from here, for being of here. As he states, he doesn't live in Newark anymore, but... He never left. It's how he feels. It's how I've always felt too. It's how a lot of us feel. That feeling of pride, he's one of the guys who taught it to us. He's one of the guys who defined it as much as anybody else. I think Jerry Eisenberg quietly taught New Jersey how to hold its head up high. 
I really loved talking to this guy. With this show, this small but mighty show, is New Jersey is the world the biggest podcast out there? Not by a long shot. But it has afforded me the chance to talk about this place I love with people I admire over and over and over again. And this one is really special. Enjoy it, everybody. All right, let's try to learn something. I'm already learning. I'm already worshiping at the altar of Jerry Eisenberg. No, 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 please. False, false gods. Um, I can remove you from the stream and if you want to hang out and watch and listen, it would just be like that. Does that work for you? Cool. Let me make sure. It, the, the picture, uh, it's got too much light. Well, we're just recording the audio, so it's oh, all Oh, well, and that's fine. Good. I wouldn't yeah. change my shirt. Oh, I just thought it was a comfort issue. Well, I'm old. I'm not dead. Go ahead. Let's go. <laughs> I am so thrilled today, everybody. My name is Chris Gethard. This is New Jersey is the World, a weekly podcast that celebrates all things New Jersey. And um, this is truly a bucket list interview for me. This is a name that has come up on the show many times. I've interviewed a number of journalists who covered New Jersey from, you know, Alan Sepinwall on TV, Steve Politi on sports, Jeremy Schneider and Pete Genovese. Uh, Jerry Carino of the Asbury Park Press. And and one thing I always bring up to all of these newspaper people is that you are part of a great lineage. And I have often told them <laughs> a, a defining aspect of my childhood is a little square box on the sports page with a certain face in it. And it's the face I'm looking at now. As no, I it's not the, the same. Trust me, it's not oh, the same face. The legend is here, Jerry Eisenberg. I, I'm so thrilled. This is a bucket list item. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm uh, I'm doing for, for 92. I'm not bad, and I'm still working. And I'm here because of my 15th book. So let's roll. I just read the book. I finished it the other day. You like it? Called, oh, loved it. It's called Baseballs, Nazis, and Nedix Hot Dogs: Growing Up Jewish in the 1930s in Newark. And I have to tell you, sir, if there is an audience built for this book, it is this podcast. I mean, we are not just a New Jersey obsessed podcast. We are an Essex County obsessed podcast. Uh, one of my co-hosts of our regular shows grew up in Newark. Three of my grandparents grew up in Newark. My grandfather's house on South 14th Street is still standing. So, Four blocks from where I grew up. No way. He's right on the block. He's right, that house is now right across from a USPS uh, center. I, I don't know that, but I lived, on, I lived on Shanley Avenue. Temple Ben Abraham was on the corner, and Caddy Corner from that was Blessed Sacrament. I called it the ecumenical corner, except when I was walking home from school, and I used to get the crap beat out of me. And uh, that's another story, but that's in the book. You know that story. I do. And I have to say, I, I did cringe because I grew up amongst Essex County Irish Catholics. And um, when you mentioned that the Catholic kids were the ones giving you a hard time at some points, and I have to say, that did not sound like a foreign thought to me based on some of the nonsense I saw growing up in the 80s. So I can't imagine in the 30s and 40s what you were dealing with. Well, I think when they got to be adults, they they they, they became real citizens. I mean, I... Um, Look, we came so well. I'm, you're, it's your interview, so you go ahead. I was, oh, I'm here to listen and learn, sir. All right. Well, I'll tell learn. you then. When I, we, I, I am not. I'm, look, I knew the former president for 24 years before he ran for president, and every one of those years, I tried to buy back my introduction. So, uh, 
I'm not so surprised by what's happening now, but I'll tell you this. I believe the glass is half full. I'm nervous about it, and I'm not drinking it yet till I see, but I believe it's half full because in 1930 was probably the beginning, a few years before that, the beginning of the worst time in America for Jews. And it lasted until two or three years after World War II. So here's what we saw. We grew up on Chanley Avenue, my sister and I, she was two years older. And we were 10 blocks from the Irvington-Newark border. On the Newark side, there was a, not a majority, but a sizable Jewish population. On the Irvington side, it was the state headquarters for the German-American Bund. Um, and the traffic between that line uh, there was always a fight. There was always something, and, and something more serious. In fact, there was a group that called themselves the Minutemen. They were Jewish boxers because they were. Uh, listen, when I when I was a kid, there were eight world champions, just eight, and four or five of them were Jewish because we were at the bottom of the list. Nobody wants to go out and get punched in the face to to make a living and feed his family. I'm sorry about that. Oh, please! I, I got it. just going to take one second. Yeah, go for broke. Whatever you need, we'll edit I'm, it out. I'm in the middle of my pod. I'm in the middle of my podcast. Goodbye. That was my wife. Wow, wow. You got to break. Sweet. You got to break them in. Any, wow. Anyway, let's go back to this. I How many know. more years before I can just talk to my wife that quickly and get the job done? It depends on your wife. <laughs> it depends on whether she thinks she married well or not. Yeah, we don't know yet. You're still sitting there with the headphones. But let mm-hmm. me, will you be able to edit what we're doing here? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. Right. Okay, so the Minutemen and the Bundists fought in the streets with bats and pipes. And the mayors of the two cities had to a, had a negotiate a, a stop to it. And I was only two years old when that happened. I My father couldn't wait to tell me that, though. So you have to understand my father, and you have to understand our supper table. We didn't have dinner. We had supper. We didn't eat in the dining room, which we never used. We, we ate in the kitchen. And my old man had been a minor league ball player, oh, for about maybe five years, long before he, I was a gleam in his eye. And um, he dreamed that most of the minor leagues then were independent, the, the teams. They could sell their players to major league clubs. Uh, the farm systems were very few and far between then. So my old man dreamed of running out of the polo grounds, dug out and playing for the Giants. That was his whole life before he met my mother. And um, he never gave up on the Giants, which is really funny. You see, we had three teams in New York. We had the Yankees. They they were the darlings of stockbrokers and people like that, so I paid no attention to them. <laughs> we had the Dodgers. Their fans were certifiably mad, certifiably mad. And, and um, the Giant fans, and my old man being a Giant fan, he reminded me, I look for a reference, I look to the Bible. I look for, I look for Job. The Giants went a pennant in 37 or 38, right around there. They didn't win another pennant until 1951. They didn't win a World Series until 1954. 
And my old man was, all right, send the boil, send the locust. I don't care whatever you're going to send me. Just send me a pennant once, once. And uh, so they're friends with Job. In fact, my old man was a great, great prizer of talent, too. So I'm eight years, eight years, my eighth year was the big year of my life. First of all, it's the summer. My father takes me, no, no, let me take that back. The first thing that happens is I'm walking down the street and sidewalks, you know, uneven when they, when they're not cared for and whatever. And on this crooked sidewalk, uplifted on the right side, slanted down, someone has written in blue chalk, all Jews are kites. Well, I knew I couldn't fly. I didn't know much at eight, but I knew that. So I go to my father, what does this all mean? My father says, it means you are reading the works of an illiterate moron. Yeah, to the be word, clear, you said kite, as in the thing that flies at the end of a string. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, the word is kike. It's also sheeny. It's also Jew bastard. It's a number of things. He said, now, I don't ever want you to come home and tell me, oh, Joe told me that Sam called me this way. They don't count. Somebody says it to your face, that counts. So here's what you're going to do if that happens. You're going to smile so he relaxes. You're going to throw the best right hand you ever threw in your life. And if you don't throw a left hook afterwards, don't come home. Wow. I don't think he meant the last part. I hope not. But it did mean the, the beginning. So that was my introduction to all of this. And I was eight. The same year, Hank Greenberg is chasing Babe Ruth's record. He's got 58 home runs, and that's where he stays. My father is absolutely convinced they walked him, which they did 12 times in the last two weeks or something like that, because he was Jewish. They didn't want him to break the record. When I got into business, I said, Dan, you got it all wrong. It wasn't a, a philosophy. It wasn't bigotry. It was the pitchers. Nobody wanted to throw the 61 home run ball. They were going to be linked with him for life. He yeah. did the same thing that same year, Louis Schmeling. Now we had the Bundes in the, to the north, to the west of us. Yorkville in New York was loaded with the Bundes, and when they had the rally the year after, I was nine then. The year after they had the big rally in Madison Square Garden. I've seen the footage. Yeah. Well, I saw it a week after it was filmed, because my father said. You're not going anywhere Saturday except with me. And he was working six and a half days and just cut back to five and a half in a factory. So we go down there and I see the, I see the footage. I see this 20, 30 foot tall George Washington with his swastika to his left and one to his right. And it's, it's a nightmare. 12,000 of the 20,000 people are wearing stormtroopers uniforms and giving it this. And my father, who was wounded in World War One, he's getting, he took it to give me a history lesson, but now he's getting pissed off. So we're walking out the door and he said, those mumsers, which means bastards in Yiddish, those mumsers, I helped stop them in 1917 and 1918. Somebody's got to stop them now. I'm an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid. I look up and I say, aren't they in Germany? My father thinking about the border with Irvington, says, no, they're here. And it's going to end here. Well, I'm eight years old. It's the cover of the book. That's me walking down the street. It's the day it happened. I'm walking down the street with him. I'm wearing knickers and long stockings. And my father has got an overcoat on. And he would tip the brim of his fedora like that every time he passed a good-looking woman. 
<laughs> and he, so he says to me, it's got to be done now. And I, and I protested, and, I, and he says, they are here. Open your eyes, they're only 10 blocks away. I'm looking behind buildings. Are they there? Are they gonna, what's going to happen, right? And then I, he realizes, yeah, a little bit too dramatic, what he said. So he said, okay, how about lunch? How about a Needix hot dog? And I say, only with an orange drink. And so those things, baseball, Nazis, and Needix, big, big part of my life. Well, I have to tell you, I mean, you grew up in the 30s. I grew up in the 80s. And still, I connected with it so hard on a personal level because I can tell you, at least through when I grew up, and I imagine it's still very true today, I feel like all of Essex County is defined by Nork. And there's this thing that is hard to capture that I'm sure happens in other places, but not the same way. That's this mixture of hustle outshines everything, race and class and religion bounce off each other on the streets, block to block. They're things that everyone's aware of that define you for better or worse. And to me, that's the Essex County existence. And I don't know if I've read anything that sums it up as well as this book. Well, yeah, it's quite I nice really loved it. Well, I'll tell you, one thing was Newark, was, Newark had 410,000 people living in it when I was growing up. And it was a classic factory town. Everybody I knew worked in a factory. My father, the factory killed my father. He was in a dye house and kept inhaling aniline dye. But everybody had that thing. It was not a melting pot. I think everybody's got America wrong. It's not a melting pot. It's a mosaic. It's a mosaic. Everybody, even if they're third generation, and I was first generation, even if you're third generation, something of where your great-grandfather or your father or whoever where they came from stays with you. So we were a series of enclaves. That's why I say mosaic. Because the thing was, I wrote a novel when I was 88. And the only reason I wrote the novel was I was told you can't write a novel, you don't know how. So I wrote it. And it was top of my bucket list. And it was, it was about... It starts with the Newark riots, which I covered. It was called um, um, Love. No, I'm just trying to get it right. Uh, After the fire, love and hate in the ruin in the ashes of 1967, and it's about the indicted mayor, which is real. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about the mafia coming in to control the election, which is not real. But I knew all those guys. I've spent time in their headquarters. Right? I think it may, won't be in the book because that was only the first 21 years. I knew them all. Carlo Gambino, Richie the Boot Biardo. And, and um, so I said, I thought to myself, if they could fix the election, they would because they wanted to keep riding the garbage trucks. That's all they wanted. They didn't care who ran the city. They just wanted to get, keep that franchise. And then in the middle of it, there comes a Italian kid from Monk, from um, from Newark, Barringer High School. In those days, there were 1,400 kids in Barringer, and every name ended in a vowel. <laughs> and then 40 kids, when they, when they dispensed with districts for high schools, 40 kids, black kids, showed up, not in a march. Or they, they, they just number, that was the total. A girl goes over there, and they meet, they fall in love. 
Not in high school. They don't even, they walk past each other in the halls. They don't say a word. The Italians aren't talking to the blacks. The blacks aren't talking to him. She stands behind him in the cafeteria line. Doesn't know, she knows his name because he's the captain of the football team. He doesn't know her name. He never speaks to her. So where do they meet? They meet in the post office. The only place they could meet. It's right after the riot. The Italians are controlling jobs, so he gets a summer job. The federal government is saying, you got to get more blacks here. So she gets a summer job. They're sorting mail next to each other. She won't speak to him. I didn't want to talk about this book. I'll make it real short. So he, she's furiously sorting mail. She recognizes you. He says, you know, miss, excuse me one second, but I think I know you. She said, you don't know me. No, you don't know me. And she gets off the chair and stands in the pose that every man has seen in some woman who's pissed off at him. Hands on hips, legs apart, and she says, you don't know me, you recognize me. But you were too busy to say hello in the mornings, so don't, look, do me a favor, shut up, because the next thing you're going to say is some of your best friends are black. Then he sees one of the political pointies gets her in a corner, he's groping her. I have no trouble saying what my father said to me and transposing it into the mouth of an Italian father because we all were alike and we didn't know it. That was the biggest problem. So my father had said to me, if a, if a, if a woman's in trouble, a girl's friend, it's your problem. And if it's your sister, break his neck. I had the Italian father tell that to this kid. He sees it happen. He runs over, left hooks the guy. The guy goes down. They go back to the short mailing. He says, nobody would do that for me. She gets off the chair again in a different pose, and she says, I owe you an apology. He says, you don't owe me crap, nothing. And I don't owe you anything for how many years of slavery it was, so let's stop that right now. And you want to do me a favor? Shut up. Just shut up, because the next words out of your mouth are going to be some of your friends are white. And they look at each other, and they laugh, and that triggers the plot. I love it. Well, I love enough. it. That's a Nork story. Get, get the book. I will. Yeah, I'm glad. Plug that one too. I, Sorry, you yeah. know, it's the exact era. My dad went to Essex Catholic, and he started his freshman year fall of '67. So it's it's written exactly when my dad was uh was going yeah. to high school, right down there. Well, anyway, I I really uh, I wanted to do this for a long time. I've written 15 books. Only two of them have I opened when the finished product came in the mail. Yeah. That one and the one we're about to talk about because they were so personal to me, really personal. I want to say, again, anyone listening, if you like this podcast, you will love this book. Um, and I, I also want to say, too, I enjoyed it from many angles. I enjoyed each story on its own. And then the way you wrap the book up, and I don't want to spoil the scene. Yeah, don't. The story, you know, that story, I, I, I will tell you, I've, I've, I've rarely read something where I go, I enjoyed each separate piece of this along the way. And then this story shows me, it's, it's like a knockout punch. It's for someone who's written so much about boxing. I go, that was the knockout punch. That was you landing the uppercut that ties everything other, every other story in that book. When I read that final story. I went, oh, every single other thing led right to this. And some of the time I knew it. And a lot of the other times I was, I'm blindsided. The by scene, that. the scene itself. I've had people tell me they cried. Oh, it got to me. I was yeah. choked up. Hey, it got to me when I was writing it. I bet. <laughs> I bet. 
I wanted to ask you too, there's some, you write about something specific to Nordic history that we've referenced on our show, but I'll be honest, there's not too many people around for me to talk about the heyday of this organization. And I know what happens when there's local sports heroes in Essex County, because for me, kids of my generation, that was Rick Sorone, that was PJ Carlissimo and Terry DeHair and Jerry Walker at Seton Hall in 89. That was Brevin Knight coming out of Orange, going to Seton Hall Prep, making it to the NBA. In Essex County, when there's local sports people that make it, the county rallies around them. There's a famous story a friend of mine told me that he was in a Catholic church Sunday service in 1989 and they prayed in Catholic church. They prayed for the Seton Hall Pirates in the NCAA tournament. Like Essex County goes, and you went to games with the Nork Bears. You were there for the Bears' heyday. And that's something that doesn't get talked about as much as it should these days. The real Bears. Like when I refer to Sugar Ray Robinson, I just refer to him as the real Sugar Ray. Yeah. And you can interpret that very easily. And, and uh, the, I'll tell you how the Bears were. We were 12 miles by 12 minutes by train from New York City. But except for the North Ward, Italian Ward, nobody paid attention to the Yankees. They did because you had a guy named Joe DiMaggio there and Tony Lazzari, and that, that makes fans. But the Bears owned Newark. Every Wednesday at a restaurant downtown Newark, there'd be a meeting of the Grizzlies. They were the booster club of the Newark Bears people who bought tickets. And, and every Wednesday, the manager would bring a player and he would talk to the people. They had spring training and they, they were owned by the Yankees. They had Sebring, Florida as their spring training base. They would come home. Here's what would happen from the time they get off the train. There's a series of, we didn't call them convertibles, they were called open cars. And the players are jumping in the cars. And they're led by Mike Basile's Eastward Band. They played for everything. They played for the Black National Anthem at the, at the Black Games, the Eagles Games. They were everywhere. They marched through the streets of Newark to the ballpark, Rupert Stadium. People are lining the way. This is a work day. This is a Thursday, I think. Maybe, but it's a work day in the middle of the week. They go to the stadium to watch them work out. All they're doing is throwing balls around. People, yeah, they're going to be good, yeah. The next day is the big traditional day. They play the Yankees in Newark. It's the last exhibition game. And you better win that game. And the Yankees were not, they knew how to promote. They, some sore-arm pitcher who was going to go to Valdosta the next day, he's pitching against the Bears, and he thinks it's his big try. It's not. He's got a play ticket there. He's going to hand it to him, and he's going to leave because the Bears got to win that game. I worked. I always I worked since I was 12, really. And uh, I worked downtown in Newark, and I, was, I would come home at night, and I'd get off the bus. And I lived on the end of Shanley Avenue between Madison and Clinton. I get off, there's no air conditioning. And a lot of people didn't even have fans. Every window is open. And a guy named Earl Harper is doing the play-by-play of the Newark Bears. I could walk from, from Clinton. I get off a block early. I go from Farley up Clinton across 
uh, Hanley, I would never miss a pitch because every window was open and everyone had the Bears games on. You, you, you learn so much about life, you know. My first baseball glove, uh, my father said, he, my father had an old catcher's mitt. He played second base, but he had an old catcher's mitt and he had a fielder's glove. And he would leave the house at 5.30 in the morning to go inhale all his crap and work. And he, But in the summer, he'd get home and be six to be light. He'd say, go get the gloves. And we'd go out and we'd throw the ball back and forth in the driveway. And he didn't really want to do that. I didn't realize that till later. He, he didn't want me to miss it. That's what it was in his mind. So here's what happened. Here's what I really should have figured it out then. I'm standing in the living room. I'm all bundled up. My father has a muffler. It's snowing outside. It was, seemed like it was always snowing in Newark. And we had big snowstorms. And my mother says, what's this, Doc? What, what, what's going on here? My father says, we have important business today. My mother says, you're going to take him outside? He said, goodbye. He takes me by the hand out the front door. We go in. The snow is so strong. I can't see the bus coming, but I can hear it because there were no snow tires. They had chains. Mm-hmm. And the chains would always break with the concrete. And you hear them going boom, 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 like that. We get on a bus. We go downtown Newark to Vegas Sporting Goods Store. We walk in the door. There's a big display. I'm excited. There's a, I don't know why I'm there, but there's a big display of a guy in a Newark Bears uniform and you know, in the window. And we walk in. My father goes straight to a, a wire basket and his baseball gloves. And now I'm going to get my first baseball glove. And he takes them out and he's smelling them. I don't know what the hell he's doing. Then he hands me a little blonde glove and says, Tan, this is the glove you will play with. And he goes to pay. I look at the heel of the glove, and it's signed by Jimmy Gleason, the left fielder in 1937 when I saw my first baseball game, which was in Newark Bears. And he was the left fielder. He was later sold for 75000 A lot of money in those days because the, they were the producer of, of Major League Players. If they, no one with the Yankees. They sold them, and they made money. So now I'm going to be Jimmy Gleason. Nobody's going to stop me now. It's snowing like hell. My father says on the bus, look, we get home, go down to the cellar. We didn't have a basement. We had a cellar. We went down to the cellar, get a bottle of Neatsfoot oil. We're going to pour it all over the glove. Then we're going to put a baseball in the pocket. Then you're gonna, I'm going to give you a belt. You're going to tie it up, put it on the shelf. We're not going to touch it until next baseball season. I'm crushed. I got a new glove. I want to be Jimmy Gleason. He looks at me and he says, how the hell with it? Come on. We're out in the blizzard, no coach. We're throwing a ball back and forth. And on the kitchen window, Sadie Weiser Eisenberg is banging the glass. My sugars, my sugars. You're going to give him, that's my only son. You're going to give him pneumonia. He's going to die. Get in the house, put coach on. My father says, I can't hear her. And I, now I'm in a conspiracy and I say, neither can I. So we keep throwing the ball. And then he throws the ball as high as he can throw it. He says, okay, Jimmy Gleason. You don't catch this ball, the Bears will lose the international pennant, league pennant. You catch it, and we're going to go to the Little World Series. I'm staggering around. All I can see is the snow. I can't tell the baseball from the snow. It's coming, coming. The last second, I stick my hand out. Ball sticks in the hand. I look at him, and he's smiling. And I realize he gave me two great gifts that day. He taught me to love the game, 
and he shared his, that's where we, the first moment I can remember that we really bonded. And it was a bond that nobody broke, not even death. Jerry, I got to ask this one. So you've, you've grew up in Newark. Yeah. Rutgers Newark graduate, wrote for the Newark Star Ledger. I mean, a lot of New Jersey stories, especially in the sports sphere, you are the person who defined those New Jersey stories. You've thought hard about it, and now you've written this book about your time spent in Newark. Yeah. I wonder, I know you don't live there anymore. No. Do you keep tabs on the city? Do you have a plane? Oh, absolutely. I, no, I can't come in. I, I haven't been on a plane in three years. Yeah. The last time I was on, I did the first 53 Super Bowls. So I yes, said, and then, I'll, so. then I'll finish with the Triple Crown races. And the rest of the time, current events, I can write from this desk right here. So I go to the Derby, my 58th Derby. And I'm in the back stretches where the stables are, where they keep the horses. And suddenly I hear a siren go off. That means there's a horse loose. So I'm saying, phew, I, I better run. Run, hell, I can't even walk. What am I doing? I decided then I'd finish up the stretch and I would call Donald Newhouse, who owns the papers, and I would tell him, I'm going to give you a, an offer you can refuse. First time this happened, I had put in 70 years. No, no, no. It was 1977. I mean, in my 60 years with the paper. They gave me a 1,500 people going away present, you know. As a, uh, There were two senators there. There were two former governors there. there were two, I mean, it was a good crowd, and there were the people that I wanted there. there. And um, after that was over, I went to Donald, and I said, you know, Donald, I got a great pension. I can make as much money by not working. How about you make me the columnist emeritus? And he said, well, what does a columnist emeritus do? I said, whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> and he said to me, well, give me an example. I told him what I was going to do. He said, well, how much money do you want to do this? Big negotiator, piece of paper, write down a number, hand him the paper. He says, I'm not paying you this. I'll pay you half. I said, why do you think I wrote down that number? <laughs> and from that moment on, I became the columnist emeritus. Well, now... I couldn't go anywhere anymore. I called him up and I said, you can refuse this offer. But I can call anybody in the country, which I can, that I need to talk to. They'll always call me back. In fact, in the last three or four days, I spoke to George Foreman and Wayne Lucas. That's pretty good parley. So um, they do call. So I got a formula now. First piece about the Super Bowl, the first piece about each race is about the town, what I remember, the crazy things I saw and whatever else. And then all the others up until the race or the game are the result of phone calls because they'll call me back. And then I will watch it on television. The first year I watched it in a sports book, but it was too distracting. I mean, it, it was funny, really, you know. Uh, nobody knew what the hell they were talking about. They just knew they had money on the game. And it made a decent piece. But since then, uh, that's how I do it. And uh, he said, I got to keep you in the paper. I'll keep, I want to keep your picture. So he said, tell you what I'll do. You do it, handle it any way you want. I'll pay you what I was paying you to be columnist emeritus. So I can't, how the hell can I complain about that? You know, when you're 92, you want to complain about everything. I don't have anything to complain about. Except maybe, maybe my physical. But, you know, thank God it's my back uh, and my legs. 
and not my head because I write every day. I'm working on my next book now. I love that. It's going to be the story. The, un- the name of the book is going to be The Man Who Was Not Jackie Robinson. And it's going to be the Larry Doby story you never read. He was my friend for 40 years. He told me the things that happened to him. Jackie had it tough. Nothing like him. The name of the first chapter is Cleveland Ain't Brooklyn. That tells you where we're going with it. Uh-huh. Well, I love it. I lo- I'm a big fan of the fact that there's a Larry Doby Highway back behind the Meadowlands back there. There's and a I'm- Larry Doby um, Rest Center on the, on the Turnpike. But there's also... Um, when I was inducted into the, I'm in 17 Halls of Fame. So when I was inducted into New Jersey, there was a New Jersey Sports Hall of Fame. Then, but now I'm in the New Jersey State Hall of Fame. And they got my picture in Penn Station, uh, and a bunch of other uh, things here on the parkway. Uh, some woman they named the parkway stopped. This woman is a children's author, and there's a big picture of me. And it's next to the men's room. And I, I really believe they meant to put it inside and they got the wrong instructions. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm just a very lucky son of a bitch. I wonder if you have thoughts on where Nork's at today. Because, you know, there's been many years of people saying there's going to be a big turnaround. There's a part of me that feels like, was it overblown that that even needed to happen? It does seem like it's starting to happen. I wonder, I wonder if you have opinions well, on Well, it's happening thing. in a selective way. Yeah. Yeah, it's down in the there. iron bound. Well, the iron bound is the iron bound. In fact, they got their own problems. The Portuguese and the Brazilians are fighting. But but, uh, but yeah, people find someone to fight with. You know, you can't be totally satisfied. But the thing about Newark is uh, they fixed, they built the Prudential Arena. They mm-hmm. built the Performing Arts Center, which is absolutely magnificent. Mm-hmm. And they're rehabbing. Or re- what Newark Rutgers has done with the old Haynes building is remarkable. I did a I did a, a book signing there for my boxing book, and we sold 150 books in one night. I mean, but that all comes together. And Rutgers itself now is, I'm very proud of them, extremely so, because for three years, uh, U.S. News and World Report ranked them as the most diverse school in America. And they are. And it's not just black-white. It's Africans and Russians. And it, it, that's that's really the future of the city, but they're not there yet. But that's where it's going, and it, and it should go. Um, but I, I'm a little concerned that all of the development is downtown. Now, people, you know, Joe and Susan Suburbanite, will tell me, oh, it's I go to anything down here. There's cops everywhere you go in. It's wonderful. A new, couple of new restaurants and blah, blah, blah. And I don't say anything because I'm wondering what's happening in the wards. Yeah. If all the cops are down there, what is happening in the wards? We went through a period, I say we because I, I, my heart is always in work. In fact, when they put me in the, the New Jersey Hall of Fame, I couldn't go. I couldn't fly. And I called up Chiano, Greg Chiano. I said, you got to do something. you got to induct me, and you got to accept the induction. He said, I said, don't t-shirt me. You, you, you accept it. And he said, I'll be honored to. 
the morning of the induction, I said, one other thing I didn't tell you. I wrote a speech. After you accept it, you will read my speech and don't screw it up. Jerry, you might be the only guy who can boss Greg Schiano around in Jersey to this degree. Uh, you might be the only guy. I don't even know if Phil Murphy gets away with that. Uh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But the thing, you know, I, I love Newark. And, and so when they when they they asked my, they, they interviewed me to do it. What do you think about being in a New Jersey State Hall of Fame? And I said, you know, uh, i trying to remember how. Oh, I said. The guy said, welcome home. And I said, what are you talking about? I never left. My body left, but I never left. This is my hometown. I, I will do a little showing here for the New Jersey State Hall of Fame. They're building a building now, which is going to be magnificent. Steve Edwards, the executive director, is terrific. He had me do two exhibits for that Hall of Fame. One was I'm sitting in a fake television studio, and I'm talking about what I think about life, my religion, my family, my city, which it still is, all of that. The other one is called Hometown Tour. These are both done with reality glasses. So I'm, I'm sitting across from you when you see it in there. You're sitting in a convertible, 1942 convertible. I'm standing on the curb and I'm telling you, you got to love my hometown. You have to love it. What other city has its own language? When a guy says to you, I'm going to ask you, don't get worried. He's going to ask you a question. That's all. But if he says, you, 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 you run like hell. Well, now in the best tradition of New Jersey and Newark, I'm going to ask you a question. How would you like to see my hometown? And then the car is moving because you're in reality. And I'm taking it. Most of them are gone. But there's pictures. There's, I take you through the town that I grew up in. And I, that's one I like because my grandkids can come and watch it. Long air from God. I love it. I love it. Not that I'm going anywhere. No, I, I hope not because we need you around and we need these stories. We need this next book. I do. Yeah. I have one more for you. It's a little off topic and yeah. I just want to plug the book again. It's great. And again, if you've loved hearing me and the guys on the podcast rambling about the Belmont Tavern and Jimmy Buffs and Dickie D's and all these Essex County places and, and lemon ice and, and, Mike D breaking down what it means to be a Gavone and a Mota de Farm and explaining all the Italian language to me. If you've liked that at all, I mean, this book was written for you. It's, it's, it's great. Um, well, I appreciate that. And, oh. and we were doing very well. We shipped, we slipped a little bit, but we were under the category of, of Jewish memoirs. We had gotten as high as, as nine which means the lower the number, the, the more you're selling. Mm -hmm. And now it slipped to 100 and I think it's 121, something like that. But it's funny, it bounces back all of us. It's, it's like poison ivy or it's like athlete's foot. You think it's gone, you treat it, it comes back again. I have high hopes for this book. Well, I'm telling you, everybody listening to this podcast, I hope you go out and buy it today. I hope you go and buy it from a local bookseller in New Jersey where that scan will count. And I hope we see it move right back up the lists. Now oh, I do well. have to, I got to ask you before I let you go, because I'd kick myself if I had you on the line and I didn't ask this. So a lot of Jersey people like to say, you know, there's this debate, like who, who's almost like the standard bearer of New Jersey? Who's the most Jersey person there is? And the popular answer is, of course, Bruce Springsteen. And Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not foolish. I'm not going to dispute that. But I will say to me, 
someone who's read your words over the years, someone who's a sports fan, and specifically someone who, strangely, no one else in my family is. I've always been a combat, a combat sports fan. I have long made the argument that I think Arturo Gatti might be just as Jersey as anyone else, well, he even though be, he wasn't born here. Well, he could be the face of New Jersey. Yeah, in a lot he's of been, ways. He's been hit long enough that he's the face <laughs> of New Jersey. You know, the thing about New Jersey, here's what I like. You see people on the street in Newark. Now, I'm living in Henderson, Nevada. I do not go into Las Vegas unless I have to see a doctor, of which I see many. Uh, but I don't gamble there. My bookmaker is here in Henderson. I, you know, I, I'm very loyal when it comes to gambling, uh, particularly when I win. And and uh, it's, but but it's home. It's like I said in that headline that in the headline they wrote of it. Uh, Welcome home, Jerry. But hell, you never left, and I never did. Uh, it, it's so many. The, the novel also is just Newark. I mean, you you'll see places you knew. You'll see it, it's a great place, and it's when I see people. Uh, my recollection: I've been here fifteen years now, and I've been back to Newark a few times. My father had this house and paid six thousand dollars for it in Chanley Avenue. Every window was broken when we moved in, and the stores, the stairs were crumbling and they fixed it up and we, I lived there till I left to go to Korea and uh, he planted a trellis on the garage the left side of the garage with roses when I was back there oh, maybe about 10 years ago the roses are still blooming wow and that is of course you're blooming in Newark they wouldn't dare stop that, you know, whatever it's supposed to be is going to keep on being. Some things are there that I don't like, but I, we can overcome them eventually. We've had a, uh, I, I don't want to, I hate to use this term, and I, I'm, I'm not going to say it. We're going to talk about the mirrors. Um, it's got nothing to do with color. It's got nothing to do with income. It's got to do with um, not understanding the city. You know, uh, Everybody was transplanted, and the current one's father was, I believe, well, I no, he was born in Newark, I'm pretty sure. But you see, the thing about Newark, I loved everything about Newark. I, I set the Avon Avenue School truancy record, grammar school, because I always was in the Bears ballpark watching them play. And I, I was learning more there, I felt, than I would learn. Okay, so now I go there one day and I see this other team I've never seen. It says Newark and a big E on the hat. It's the Newark Eagles. They go nationally. Well, shit, I'm gonna, it's got Newark and I'm going to root for them. I'll stay. Well, the thing was, because I could sneak in there. I knew how. And the thing was, uh, there were times when I would be at a ball game uh, and I was the only white kid in short pants in the stadium. Uh, baseball is baseball. So my father taught me that's what it is. You know, I have to tell you a couple of things. I don't know if you have the time, but I'm going to tell you. Go for anyway. it. Go okay, for number it. one. The first baseball game I ever went to, the New York Bears were playing. And a guy named Walter Judnick, who had been with the, with the St. Louis Browns, and he'd been up, you know, um, he hits a foul ball. Now, Rupert Stadium had a little low 
cement fence painted green. Ballparks, everything was green. Everything was green. Even the hot dogs were green, I think. But I ate them anyway. Um, and my old man gets up. He would have been the second baseman. He elbows the guy out of the way. He bare hands the catch, right? Everybody, yeah. Comes back, hands me the boy. He says, now listen. When we leave, we're not going out the way we came. We're going out by that exit behind us. It'll put you on a street next to the Bears' locker room. When he comes out, you'll be polite. You go up to him and say, my dad caught this ball. And you, Could you sign it? Okay. He does. He comes out. He, he's touched. He said, your dad caught that ball barehanded? He said, Man, give me another. He signs it. Well, of course, it didn't last because my daughter wanted to play baseball on a rainy day or play catch or whatever, and it came back covered in mud and you couldn't read anything. Years later, I'm waiting to go to Korea. I'm in Fort Lawton, Washington, and it's a beautiful day, and I say, I'm going to go to the ballpark today. Sick stadium, it was called. Little palm trees, pine trees around it. Took a trolley to get there. Okay, this is a ballpark. This is because I, today I much more appreciate minor leagues than the majors. This, this is a ballpark. I buy a program. I'm going to send it to my father. I open it up. Walt Judnick is playing for the Seattle Veneers. Watch out. Well, they, you know, everybody went out to there to pay because they got paid more money. Um, they had an open classification. All right. I see the game. I go, I'm in uniform. I go down there, waiting outside the, the, the dressing room, just as I did how many years ago. He comes out and says, Mr. Uh, I have to, Jonathan, I have to uh, tell you a story. And I tell him the story. And he says, you still got that ball? I said, not exactly. And I tell him what happened to it. He said, well, so much for immortality. I said, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're going to live in here forever, forever. He said, I'll sign another boy. I said, be cheating. I know what the ball looked like. I know what you look like. And I know the foul was right by the third base line. That's all I need to know. That's one baseball story. Another one is, this was my favorite baseball story because it had like five endings. I'm in the Bears ballpark. I've sneaked in, of course. It's a day game. If I can stay in the bleachers, they won't bother me. It's not sold out in the bleachers, you know. But if you sneak into the grandstand, the guys in the red jackets will get you and toss you from the ballpark. I sneak in. Every time I try to sneak in the grandstand, I, de I deserve no less, I thought. I see a, a, a program laying on the ground from the day before. I pick it up. I, I got a pencil. I lean over that little railing that I talked about. A guy's going to the bullpen. And I said, could I have an autograph? He said, not today, kid, not today. I thought ballplayers were icons, you know. I, I, I couldn't conceive of why they, why they would be nasty or mean or whatever. You know, hey, the guy could have been constipated. He could have had a disagreement with his wife and there was no sex the night before. All these things, right? I was a snotty kid. And I keep saying, well, you could do it. You could do it. You now he said, there's that hair throws it on the ground. Now, if a Jersey City Giant had done that, I could understand it because I'm always rooting for the Bears, not them, right? But one of my guys, 
I used to stand in front of Chris Chop House and look inside and watch the players eat. And then we would walk back to the Rivera Hotel with them. I mean, one of my guys could do this to me. A woman comes over and grabs me by the arm. He says, come with me. Oh, she got to throw me out of the ballpark. We walked down the third baseline where the Bears dugout was on the third base side. And there's about 15, 20 women sitting all together. And she says, sit down with these ladies. I'll be right back. I don't know who they are. She goes down. She leans into the dugout. She comes back with an autographed baseball. And she hands it to me. She said, this is the entire Newark Bear roster as it is this morning. They didn't come change their players, but this morning. This is for you. She said, do you know George Sternweiss? Oh, you know who George Sternweiss is? Well, George Sternweiss was the second baseman. His nickname was Snuffy. And later he told me a story that when he met her, um, he, he was sitting, and the, the, Mickey Whittock, who later played for the Giants, was the second baseman. Uh, was a shortstop, and he was the second baseman. And they're looking at the stands, and he's looking at this girl. She's pretty attractive. And he elbows Whittaker, and he says, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And he did. That's who the woman was. And she said, ladies, what did you say your name was? I said, Jerry. She said, this is Jerry Lee. And I know he will get in trouble again with the ushers this summer. It's a long summer. If I'm not here, take care of him, will you? That's a great story. Now, 30 years or more go by. The railroad bridge does not go down over over Newark Bay. But the train does, the commuter train. 30-some-odd people drown. I'm writing a column now, and I'm in what we had a wire room that is shouting, bang, 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 you hear all the machines going on. It's where newspapers, I guess, should still be, but they're not. And I'm looking in to see, what happened today? I don't have a column. I read about the bridge. One of the passengers is George Sternweiss. I go back, I write the column. I write about what she did for me. About a week later, I get a neatly typed envelope. I open it up. I can't read one word. There's a posted, uh, po- no stickers attached to it. And um, written very clearly is, I am Mrs. Sternweiss's nurse, and she wanted to write this to you because she remembers you. Um, so if you get a chance, maybe you can talk to her. She's got MS, and she got a lot of trouble. So that should be the end of the story, Tommy. But it's not the end of the story. Now I'm writing my memoir. I had a hell of a memoir. I wrote it when I was a kid. I was 78, and it was not this one. You know, this is that. Yeah. This was called uh, Through My Eyes, which about... Um, it was about growing up with sports and my a young sports writer and whatever else. Two of them gets to be an old one. And I'm going to tell that story about my, it was called My Baseball Goddess. That was the um, chapter's name. And I'm trying to remember whether she said she lived in Newark or what. I don't remember. I knew she had a daughter who worked as a barmaid in Red Bank. So I called the bar. The guy, the guy knew who I was right away. And he says, she don't work here anymore. But she comes in every Friday night. I'll give her your message. Give me the phone number, and I'll have her call you. Friday night, the phone rings. I pick up the phone. She said, I'm looking for Jerry Eisenberg. And I said, well, I don't know who you are, but you got him. She said, 
The little boy with the baseball, at last we meet. My mother told me that story a thousand times. Wow. And that that's something you got to respect those guys. They, they're not like the players you have today. They're not like. And when I started with the major leaguers, we had good relationships. What happened is they began to make more and more and more money, and the league began to expand, so we were flying by plane, and there's no relationship, really, except guys that are trying to kiss their ass, and I would never do that. Um, but my father taught me, and she taught me, respect for the game. She said to me, a player should never act like that toward a, toward a kid. Now I'm in Okinawa. Um, my daughter had been married to a uh, Marine flyer, and I'm at the camp there. And I go for a walk. I'm walking down the hill, and I see a stadium. I say to her, well, what is that stadium? He said, well, that is the spring training stadium of the Tunichi Dragons. Well, I knew a guy who played for the team. I knew a guy everywhere. Right? I knew a guy who played for <laughs> He later became the manager of the Outlaw North Bears, the Sharon's team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he won a pennant for them. So I said, just let me go in and look at the ballpark. And I, but there's about 12 cars out there. Who's in the ballpark? There's a high school game going on. The Dragons, when they would leave to go back to the mainland for to Hokkaido, or not Hokkaido, to Hanshu, they would go back for uh, the season to start. But they said the high school kids could have the stadium while we're gone. So there's, there's about 20 people in it sitting on benches, playing benches. And to my left, there's a woman in a kimono. That's how long ago this was. Uh, they don't wear them now. Uh, this would have been 19, about 1953 or 4. And I'm looking at the game, and she says to me, you like baseball? I say, yeah, I do. She said, you like the pitcher? I said, well, listen, he better get off that Japanese diet and gain about 35 pounds if he wants to throw fastballs. She said, he's my son. She moves over and says, and now we watch the game together. We get to the ninth, and he's a little guy, left-hander, and, and <laughs> we get to the ninth inning, and he loads the bases with one hit, two walks, and then he strikes out the side. And I say, they're pretty good, better than I thought. Just then, the winning team runs into the dugout, comes out with rakes and drags and everything like that. The losing team is in the stand, stands. They're picking up, and it's a big grandstand. They're picking up cigarettes. They're picking up uh, candy wrappers. They're cleaning. The, 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 I can't believe what I'm seeing. Now they line up. They bow to the team that, but they're bowing to each other. They bow to the umpires. And then the groundskeeper comes out, and they bow to him. I said, what's that all about? She said, oh, he gives them the field. They must thank him for it. They must show respect. And I'm thinking, if I went to a high school in Newark, any high school in Newark, and I managed it, I coached the team that day, and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do when the game ends. They would look at me and say, you want us to do what? That's where respect for the game is gone. Yeah. I love it. I love it. You're full of beautiful stories, sir. And I have to thank you. I, I, I really do. I don't, I don't get the sense you're one who enjoys anybody blowing smoke. 
And I, no, I promise I you, I'm not trying to do that, but I will say, I think there's a part of New Jersey through the sports lens where you look at it, you grow up in New Jersey and you go, Seton Hall losing an 89 on a bad foul call. You go, Gaddy never fulfilling his destiny as a great boxer, but instead becoming the best fighter for better or for worse. Rutgers beating Louisville in 06 and not winning a championship, just winning a game they weren't supposed to win. How about, Rutgers, how about the poor kid who dropped the pass? I guess oh, yeah. West Virginia, they'd be in the oh. Orange Bowl. The, but, that, but nobody remembers that. We remember that they beat Louisville when they weren't supposed to. And oh, I no, see Louisville go, was ranked sixth and then about fourth or sixth, somewhere in there. And I remember the game was over and I was getting ready to leave. And they were, they, they were still out there celebrating, right? And a guy, I looks familiar, comes up to me and he said, he's my, one of my doctors. <laughs> I always had doctors. And he said, uh, you know, we'd tell Greg for me, I lived long enough to see this night. That was all I was asking for. I said, well, you better do a better job with me because I'm asking for a lot more. <laughs> and and uh, th there were so many things. I'll tell you something you don't know. There was a football team called the Newark Bears. I don't mean the one that came later on. And This team was in a league. The league was the Association of Professional Football Teams. They were owned by the Chicago Bears. The Jersey City Giants owned the Jersey City Football Giants. The Patterson and Panthers were owned by the Eagles. The Bears get to the championship game, and I think they're playing the Wilmington Clippers. I see the game from a tree overlooking school stadium. The one thing about that, and I, I could have been about, oh, I must have been about nine or ten. The one thing about that game, two things. One is they let the teams go. They let each, whoever makes the championship game, you're allowed to get one player from the parent club. No matter who he is, and he can play in that game. Sid Luckman played in that game. And I'm in a tree, and well, I mean, and I saw a play I've never seen before. I may be outlawed now, I don't know, but, but I saw it. I couldn't believe it. The Bears kicked off. In those days, if you pin somebody down on a five-yard line, they didn't call for some guy with clean white pants to kick a field goal. They said, but those guys have to go 95 yards. We're not, they're not going to make it. We're going to stop them. So the Bears kick off, opening kickoff. And a guy named Walt Masterson, who was the last drop kicker I ever saw, he catches the ball. He takes one step, and the Bears are coming down. He kicks the ball back over their heads, and it rolls, and it rolls. It's wind, northward wind, and it goes out of bounds on a three-yard line. And for the whole first half, the Bears never got past midfield. That was that kind of game. Years later, after the 72 to nothing game, now, now I'm a newspaper guy. I'm in Chicago where Luckman lives to see the Giants and the Bears play for the 1964 championship. Why Tittle gets hit in the knee out of the game, they lose the game. In the press headquarters, I see a guy looks familiar and I say, don't laugh at me, but are you Sid Luckman? He said, yeah, nice to recognize me, kid. Recognize you. I saw you from the best seat in the house in a tree when you played against 
uh, the Wilmington Clippers. And you won a game. And he said, yeah, I won a game when I was pissed off. I don't want to go down to that town and play a game. <laughs> you don't want to go to my town? I don't need to have anything to do with him after that. Yeah, yeah. Jerry, I got to say, some of these stories I'm talking about, Rutgers, Gaddy, Seton Hall, I go, it's easy in New Jersey for us to feel second best, to feel like losers. And those are teams that lost, or those are people that lost. But the I team think got, think- the Bears got taken away because they wanted to make more fans for the Yankees. That's why they switched all the good players sure. to Kansas City. That's what happened. And they, after two years, they left town. They sold the team to Springfield. Now, what happened with that also is it, it, they had one player. The last year they were here, 49, I think it was. One player named Bob Porterfield, left-handed pitcher, and he was good. And to continue to try to emasculate this team, they brought Porterfield up in the middle of the season. He barely pitched, but that was the end of any attendance. This was a smart town. Every fourth day, Porterfield pitched. Every fourth game at home, they were there. They didn't go anywhere otherwise. You know, they were terrible. But uh, they were so determined to get rid of them. Um, and I didn't like the Yankees. Uh, I liked the, I liked Joe Torrey's Yankees. Yeah, they, me too. They, they were a me different too. kind of team, and they were a different kind of Yankee, you know? Yeah, but, that was a special time. But, but the, the other guys, they weren't bad guys. As a matter of fact, none of them were bad guys. I'm talking about all of the teams. When I was a young guy, uh, first a fan, and then my even my early years in baseball. The Yankees, for example, lived in the Grand Concourse Hotel during the season. The, on that block, there was a liquor store. I did an interview with the guy who owned the liquor store. He shut down. He was leaving. It was all different then. He told me, Spud Chandler and one other guy, they used to come and kill in the winter. They stayed there. They'd come in and sit down and have coffee. And then when he went want to go out, the guy wanted to show want to go out for something, we'll take the register. And they sold liquor and beer for him while he was getting lunch or something. That was the relationship. What happened was we traveled by train. The furthest west city when I came into business was St. Louis. And not yet Kansas City because uh, there was still uh, Philadelphia A's. And we'd travel a train with them. We'd eat, lunch, we'd eat dinner with them. I didn't play cards, but the other guys played cards with them. And then they expanded, the airplane came in, and the money came in. They, they were not making a lot of money. They were making so little money that Yogi Berra and Phil Rizzuto were hired by the American clothing shops and they were paid in suits. <laughs> they would sign autographs. They were paid in suits. But now the money came pouring in. Everything was different. They make so much more money. They, 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 two things. They don't have time to talk to us. We're beneath them. Salary gap, salary cap always gap was there, but it was a small gap. They didn't make much money, you know. Um, and, um, um, so as a result of that, there was a big gap started and then television came along. 
They all want to be television stars. They all want to be interviewed by, preferably by a girl with a microphone. But either way, they want to be interviewed on television. Because when they finish, they want to be a, they want to be a, a boring color guy on, on television. Yeah. And that's their revenge, boring me to death. But I will tell you, um, they're a different type of player and they think about different things, you know. I remember Lou Gehrig never left the lineup until he couldn't stand, right? The guy from um, Baltimore who broke his record. Um, he, uh, yeah, it, it was Iron Man kind of thing. Yeah. He wouldn't leave a game. Today, they put ace bandages on, on, on pimples. Uh, I can I can't do that today. I'm coached by arm. Uh, I don't like the way the game is played today. I don't denigrate them. I mean, I mean, you hit the number of home runs, judge hits, you, you hit them. You know, there's no way to fake it. But um, I'll tell you who I really liked on the Yankees. The only Yankee that, well, not the only one, but the Yankee I got close to that nobody could, that was Maris. Oh, wow. Yeah, legendarily closed-off guy. Well, yes. A friend of mine was kind of a, he was a, he was a president of a union. Then they were Teamsters affiliated, um, the Novelty Toy and Doll Makers. And his name was Big Julie. He was 30 feet tall and 80 feet wide. He, he got his education on the picket lines with a baseball bat. Uh-huh. And... And Julie was the kind of guy, we're at, we're at a press conference, somewhere we having lunch, and I introduced him to the guy from Sports Illustrated. He said, don't introduce me to him. I don't like those guys. They're too, too Tony, too, you know, they cover yachting. He was trying to say yachting. Yeah. And then I said, <laughs> well, but you know, he said, and they cover lacrosse. I don't know what the hell lacrosse is. I said, well, you should look into it. I said, you want, it's your kind of game. 22 guys with cl- with clubs and nets. He said, oh, shit, we have that done the union every day. We call it strike. <laughs> and, and they were, but, but those guys, Julie was so American. He, he was in Yankee Stadium and he discovered the flags were made in Japan. He was infuriated. The Yankees had a little guy, he happened to be Japanese, who was a trainer, uh, uh, not a trainer, uh, it was clubhouse guy with them. He traveled with them. And when Julie saw, he, he bought a whole bunch of shoes. Uh, a Japanese shoe company was trying to get into the market. And he was giving them to players. And Julie just stood outside and waited. When he came out, Julie, it was a little guy. Julie picked him up and held him by his ankles and dropped him in the garbage can in front of the Yankee dressing room. And he said, see if you can find a customer down there. And he told Steinbrenner about the flags. He said, I don't know where to get other flags. And Julie <laughs> says, I know a guy who does know. And Julie called me and he said, isn't there a flag maker in New Jersey? I said, there certainly is in Caldwell. He told him he's got the Yankee contract. And he took down all the American flags and replaced them with these. Wow. You met guys, guys that were just, you know, they, they made a look. Somebody said to me, I was talking, I did a podcast the other day, and it was for Brene Brith, in fact, they have a station. And the guy said to ask me about them, uh, we were talking about players and their attitudes. And he said, um, 
I forget what I was going to tell you. That's a bad habit of my age. I don't remember. But anyway, something I was going to tell you, but it was so different than what you see today. I, I just, I, I was not popular. Uh, I, I was not a pro-Olympics guy. Uh, the cheating and the, the yeah. way before steroids. Do you know that when in 1934 Olympics at Lake Placid, somebody called up in the middle of the night and sawed the runners off the American bobsled. They couldn't compete. Um, there was so much of that stuff. But there, but it's just. Somebody asked me the other day. This is what I was trying to tell you. Who is my favorite fighter? You know. I said, well, as a person, Ali gets a high rate. But the guy who made the biggest impact on me was a guy named, he was an Irish kid from North, from Belfast. He was the lightweight champion of the world. He was fighting. For, now, this is at a time in the 80s when the Northern Irish and the Irish priests are just killing each other. The IRA yeah. couldn't buy it. This is really the worst it was ever. ever. It's the troubles. And, oh, boy, but these were the real troubles, but worse than the, the, what created the free state. And McGuigan, his name was Terry McGuigan, not Terry or Barry, was McGuigan was the last thing. So now he's going to fight a guy for the world championship. Well, the Irish, who are divided, stopped killing each other the night of the fight. They're going to go to the fight. They're going to root for him. He's going to be an Irish champion. The promoter bangs on the door. He says, uh, "Tell me, by you, you put me in a he's put me in a terrible bind here. I don't know whether to play the soldier song, which was the anthem of the Free State, or God Save the Queen. I, I, I just don't." Uh, he said, "You know, I'm sick of the singing. <coughs> I'm sick of the chest thumping of the chest thumping. Why don't you play the Beatles? Why not give peace a chance?" That moves him up in my He told me the story. And then the promoter says, well, I could do that. I guess, yeah, yeah. What, what, what do you got in your trunks? Do you, he's had a bathroom. Do you have the shamrock or do you have the British lion? He said, look, he had the UN piece of the dove of peace. And he said, and if they don't like it, fuck them. Because <laughs> that's the way it's going to be. He was Catholic. No, he was Protestant and she was Catholic in Belfast. He married her. He moved into a Catholic neighborhood. And you just can't live there. Don't you know that's the enemy? He said, I live where I want to live. I live with my wife. I live with my kid. He got so mad, he put his kid in a Catholic school. And said, you come down to my neighborhood and see her. Tell me, see her. You don't like it. I liked him very much. And the night, I, the week I met him, he lost the title in Vegas. It was 111 degrees before they turned the television lights on. And he wasn't ready. He fought a kid from San Antonio, wasn't ready for it. But people like that fascinate me. You remember Reggie, um, the, the linebacker with the uh, Reggie Williams, was it? The Reggie linebacker. White from the Eagles? No, 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 no. That was, that was not him. It was a guy who played with Cincinnati when they went to the Super Bowl. Okay. He later became the mayor of Cincinnati. When he was in the third grade, I love this guy. When he was in the third grade, they were going to put him in special needs. He couldn't hear anything. He couldn't get anything straight. He couldn't get his teacher. My column was not about him. My column was about the teacher, third grade teacher. 
She put him in the front row. She did everything she could. And then she had a thought. She took him and paid to have his ears tested. He was deaf. He learned sign language. He learned, okay. You know, you look at him when they call the play, he's looking, he's reading lips. You know, he's, and he was a hell of a ball player. And um, he went to Dartmouth with an academic scholarship. Wow. And and that's the kid they were going to stick with the kids who couldn't reason, you know. And uh, he became the mayor of Cincinnati. Which I, and he remembered her name. And after I asked, told him the whole story, he said, you know, I haven't spoken to her since I got out of Dartmouth. He said, I'm going to call her tonight. So I wrote about what does it mean to be a teacher? I had a teacher like that, fourth grade. Third grade, I was about to be, oh, I was terrible. I That's how I went up in military school. I, I had no concept of decency. Um, in the third grade, I fell in love. Fell in love with Anita Richter. Two braids in the back. How are you going to get her attention? We had a desk that you probably never saw. It lifted up, top desk. It's where you put the important things, a half-eaten bologna sandwich, half-chewed gum. When you put it down, there was an inkwell in the right-hand corner. I said, I'll get her attention. I, I dipped her braid, right braid into the inkwell. Corporal punishment was illegal in the schools in those days. Yeah. I got the scars to prove it. And she screamed. Miss Van Hess came waddling up the aisle and cracked me across the face twice. <clears throat> and I went home with a swollen eye. I was praying my dad would be there. He's not going to let her do this to his heir. I walk in the door. He says, you were in a fight. I said, no, don't lie to me. You were in a fight. I was not in a fight. Miss Van Hess hit me. Oh, bam. I got one on the other side. See, they match. When the teacher, he was came here at age eight from Lithuania, had not been permitted to attend school uh, uh, in Lithuania and Jewish. And uh, he said, you got two now, so you can think twice. You don't <laughs> argue with it. Well, she, a big fat woman fell on the ice in the school and broke her leg while I applauded. And she was so fat, they had to put her in a hospital and get her leg together. And now the substitute comes. A substitute company, throwing, throwing a, 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 a practice teacher in with with eight year old kids is like feeding the Christians to the lions. I mean, yeah. Well, well, Chris, let's go to English. What do we know? But what are we doing in English? We don't know. What are we doing in history? We don't know. They didn't know anything. You could shove hot bamboo out of the fingernails. They don't know anything. They figured they got the day off. She says, "We're going to do something useful." We're all going to write letters to Miss Van Hess. Get well soon. So I figure well, I'll get her ass. I sit down, I write a letter. Roses are red, violets are blue. I've had lousy teachers, but never like you. And then I decide I'm like the shadow on, on, on radio, you know, the cloud men's minds and be invisible. They'll never catch me. And I cited your student, Jerry Eisenberg. <laughs> so the war is on. <laughs> now it's time for the fourth grade. We walk down the hall. She takes my hand and she's breaking it. And we, you know, it's stupid stuff. You're two fourth grades. The teacher that everybody loves, the teacher that everybody's afraid of. Which one are we going to get? They don't tell you, you know. 
I get to teach it and everybody loves. She says, Miss Lee Joy, I'm giving you the finest third grade class I have ever taught except for this one. She shoves me into the room and she says, don't worry about him. He'll be in Rollway Reformatory before the, before the term is over. She, she, had, she, she thought prevention is the best way to win anything. She put me on the right side, the last seat, nothing on my left except an aisle, nobody sitting next to me and nobody sitting in front of me. But I found a way to piss her off. Uh, she's walking around, she's walking, she's teaching, she's walking, she's te- lecturing. I'm reading a, a book underneath the desk. She sees it, she keeps walking, she stops, stay after school, and she keeps going. Well, that was nothing. My parents taught the school day ended at six because on the days I was there, I, I, I you know, I, I had to stay after school. She sits down at the desk next to me. This was the definition of a teacher. And she looks and she says, give me the book. Where'd you get this book? The book was The Robe by Lloyd Douglas. About Jesus' robe at the crucifixion. They made a movie of it. And it had healing powers. Whoever touched it became a different person. So I tell her the story. He said, That's right. Where'd you get the book? I said, My mother. Does your mother know you have it? No. Well, you can't take things without permission. Don't you know that? Yeah, let me tell you, Miss Miss, Miss, uh, LaJoy. She's got a big empty bookcase. To make people think she's smart, she joined the Book of the Month Club. And when she fills the bookcase, she's got to resign. He said, well, we can't have that. I know what your trouble is. You get your work done too soon. Here it comes. I'm going to get a ton of homework. I'm going to get, you know, we didn't get homework at a point, but I'm going to get it, I know. She said, here's what we're going to do about that. Finish that book. If your work is done while, I'm, while the class is still otherwise occupied, Put that book on your desk in front of you and read it. And then when the next subject comes up, put it away where it belongs. You finish the book. You get another book with your mother's permission. And you bring it to me. And if I approve it, we do that. I read four books that year. And I got to read like reading so much. I'd go in the bathroom and there'd be nothing there but a bottle of uh, uh, some kind of soap. And I'd read the label. But she did that. She was real. And I, you know, I never appreciated it. Two grades later, I meet a girl in the play, in the schoolyard who's two grades ahead of me. I was like older women, right? Uh, <laughs> and and um, I say, you want to go to the movie Saturday? She said, what's playing? He's a connoisseur. I said, I don't know. Look at a paper. You'll see what's playing. It's pretty good because we got double feature, a serial of the Long Ranger, and three cartoons. So that should keep you busy. Right? So she does it. I meet her at the Roosevelt Theater. We go in. I got an extra 11 cents. I buy her a candy bar. We sit down. The lights go out. You know, I immediately head for second base. You know, I'm with my hands. Wham! I got hit in the foul. She, But she didn't leave. She wanted to see them. So she goes down the end of the road and she's watching it. I found out Three days later, she's the daughter of my sixth grade teacher. That was an interesting year, too. Wow. Oh, I I just, I I stepped in it no matter where I went. (laughs) Well, Jerry, I have to thank you. The book is 
of course, baseball Nazis and Nidix hot dogs growing up Jewish in the 1930s in Newark. People are going to love it. I could listen to your stories all day. I have read your stories my whole life. A lot of the stories you've written have given us in New Jersey pride. Instead of feeling like a bunch of losers, you've at least made us feel like lovable losers. You found the angles that made us feel proud to be from this place. And you are truly a representative of Newark, unlike any other. And I feel so lucky that we got to speak today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World is Chris Gethard, Nikki Bonaduce, Don Finelli, Andrea Quinn, Carson Kopp, and Mike D. New Jersey is the World is produced and edited by Carson Kopp, Mike D, and Andrea Quinn. You can find us online at New Jersey is the World and on Instagram at New Jersey is the World. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey is the World at 973-780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is the World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to Patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at BelowTheCollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World, where New Jersey is the world.